This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you in part by Visit Milwaukee. Have you ever had a craft beer while doing yoga in an art museum? Well, that's the kind of stuff that happens in Milwaukee. No wonder it was named the Midwest's coolest and most underrated city by Vogue magazine. They even host the biggest musical festival in the world called Summerfest, and people actually surf there. Yes, you can surf in Milwaukee. It's sometimes random, but always wonderful. Go to visitmilwaukee.org slash plan to get your trip started. Again, visitmilwaukee.org slash plan. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Listen as you drive through most neighborhoods in America these days, you might notice something missing, the shrieks and laughter of kids playing outside. When my guest today had kids, he decided he wasn't going to let them grow up in another quiet, morgue-like neighborhood. Instead, he was going to figure out why kids weren't playing outside anymore and how to fix the problem. His name is Mike Lanza, and in his book, Playborhood, Turn Your Neighborhood Into a Place for Play, he shares how he did just that. At the start of our conversation, Mike explains how he became an advocate for kids playing outside by themselves with minimal adult supervision. He shares his theories on why outdoor play has decreased and why simply limiting screen time and participation in organized extracurriculars doesn't solve the problem. Mike then explains why you need a critical mass of kids to be playing outside before outdoor play becomes a norm and what parents can do to create this critical mass by changing the environment in their yard and the social dynamics in their neighborhood. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash playborhood. Mike Lanza, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you. So you are the author of the book, Playborhood, Turn Your Neighborhood into a Place for Play. So tell us about this idea of playborhood that you came up with. What's your story? How did this all come about? Well, uh, I was living in San Francisco with my wife back in the early 2000s. And we had just been you know, single adults having a great time in San Francisco. And when my wife became pregnant with our first child, who turned out to be a son, all of a sudden I, I, I realized, boy, I have, I haven't, I really don't know what childhood is like these days. I haven't really hung out with people who have kids very much. I've just been living in my own single world, you know, urban single world, but I was an older, father to be. I was 40 years old. So I had lots of friends who had kids and I started paying attention and asking questions. And I remember one day I was at a, a friend's house and it really hit me. So, wow. <laughs> His son was arguing. My friend's son was arguing with him about you know scheduling and being with this kid or being with that kid, where they were going. And it sounded awful to me. And I turned to my friend and I said, so why doesn't he just go out and play? And my friend said, oh, kids don't do that anymore. <laughs> and I thought, wow. And, and you know, when I really processed it, I, I, I thought to myself, the best things in my life, the best memories of my childhood are, are just not possible for this kid. And apparently, according to my friend, are not possible for, for most kids these days, or maybe all kids these days. And I, I just can't accept that. I, I'm not going to raise my kid that way. And uh, so my first reaction was, well, I'm just going to buy a house in a great neighborhood that has uh, lots of kids play and I'll solve the problem. I thought it was a problem, you know, I could just, I could just solve with money and, and moving. And I searched and searched, ended up, ended up searching for over two years for a house. And I never found a house in a great neighborhood that was available and with, with lots of kids playing. I just realized how, how difficult that was. It was almost impossible. But what I did find was a house that had the bones, had the, had the infrastructure. It had, it was very walkable, a lot of good destinations close by. 
Calm Street, uh, lots of kids living in the area, not playing outside, but living in the area, Kids, our kids' age. At the time, I had a four-year-old and a one-year-old, and uh, we had thought maybe we'd have an, another kid. And I thought, well, that's the best I'm going to do. I'll move to this place. And it has a lot of things that we can make, a, make into a great place for kids to play. And that's really when I started Playborhood. So yeah, that point you made about you know, your, some of your greatest memories as a kid took part, like when you took part in unsupervised play with just your buddies, right? You're just by yourself with other kids. Like some of the, like I, when you said that, like I can think, I started thinking back to my memories as a child and yeah, like most of them happened like when I was like playing in a Creek by myself with my friends, like there was no adults around. Yeah. It, it's, it's, I don't want to, I, I, I don't want my parents to feel bad. They're, they're passed away or they may they rest in peace. But uh, yeah, my best memories, most of my best memories from my childhood are don't have any adults around. And I think there's a good reason for that. I think that we get an awful lot out of our parents that we treasure the rest of our lives, but they set us up for great experiences when they're not around. And that's when we really learn the most. That's when we grow the most. And those are the most memorable experiences. And boy, it's sad. Childhood is just not, not very good for most kids these days. Well, talk about that. What, what's the problem like with kids not playing? Well, you know, people just say, well, the way kids are doing things now is just different. It's not better. It's not worse. It's just different. But you, you make the case that no, actually, because kids aren't playing, there's some downsides to that. What are those? Well, there, there are things that are, the, the easy answers to that question are, are the measurable things. And so one of the things that a lot of people talk about is childhood obesity. Big problem. I don't know the exact statistics, but some very large proportion of, of kids is obese, just so heavy, so, so overweight that they can't even really exercise well. In some states in the United States, like Mississippi, I remember hearing it's over 30%. Of, of kids are, are obese, less so in, in other states, but still higher everywhere than it was decades ago. And that's measurable things. Things that are a little less measurable are their emotional state. There are some studies that have tried to compare kids today versus kids decades ago. There's just one study that, that where they give kids the same test, and they've been doing it since 1937 or 38, I think. And from that one study, giving the same test all these years, five times as many kids have emotional problems than had emotional problems back in the 30s and 40s, five times. We also have an increase in child and teenage suicide, big, big problem. And then there are things that are really not measurable at all, but I think are very, very important. The ability of kids to to make rules, to to adjudicate disputes when they have an argument with somebody, to bend to accommodate a kid who isn't as able, who maybe needs some needs some special help. All these things, I group them into into you know what you might call for a kid play skills. But as adults, we want adults to be able to solve problems, to create rules where there aren't good rules, to create a society that works for everybody. And these are the sorts of things we did, what I did with my friends when we played our own games of pickup, pick up baseball, pick up basketball, pick up two-hand tap football. We were doing that every day. We were you know, deciding where to play. We were making rules because they were always a little bit different. We had arguments. We solved the arguments. We needed lots of kids to play. So we let kids play who weren't as able as us and we bent the rules for them. So there was one kid in our neighborhood who was mentally disabled and we wanted him to play softball with us. And there was no way he could strike out. He got as many strikes as he wanted. And we wouldn't 
try to get him out really fast, we would let him get to first base. These are the kinds of things we want our adults to do. And I can, I think we could argue adults are not so good at doing these days compared to a few decades ago. Yeah. And you mentioned all those things, those skills, right? Rule making, adjudicating disputes, making accommodations for kids with special needs. Nowadays, like adults do that for the kids. Like the adults make the decisions and it's not like it's not no longer kid led no it's no longer kid led and so so kids think that their job is to show up and you know to do what they're told and you know not only is that not you know they're not learning a lot but try this and you know people who are listening go to a field and maybe you have kids who are in, in in youth sports go to a field and listen for how many cries of laughter shrieks of laughter and and joy that you hear it doesn't happen very often. It's pretty quiet. It's pretty serious. And I would argue it's just not that much fun. But, you know, if, if, if you have a group of kids who are playing on their own, you get, you hear a lot more of that sort of thing. Kids are not growing and they're just not having as much fun as they used to. But again, yeah, they're not having fun, but like uh, when they're having fun with play, like as you said, they're learning some really important life skills. It's a win-win. Yeah. Right. Play. Yeah. It's fun. And it's also serious stuff. You're learning serious stuff. But let's talk about like why, like why, why don't you hear those shrieks of laughter anymore when you drive through neighborhoods? What, what's happened say since, I mean, even when I was a kid, which was 30 years ago, like what's changed since then? Well, there are two ways to answer this question. And the most common way people answer the question is as a social scientist, well, let's diagnose the problem. And, you know, a lot of people have answers and, you know, and, and they're, they're essentially correct answers. We have lots of, a lot, you know, TV now has 500 channels. We have the internet. We have mobile phones, iPads. We have a lot, a lot more activities than we used to. That's sort of the standard way to answer the question. And from a social science point of view, that makes a lot of sense. The problem with answering the question that way is that that leads you to come up with solutions that address those causes. And the solutions, if you frame the problem as too much of this, too much of that, too much of that, your solution is let's take them away. And so you hear a lot of parents saying, oh, you know, we're going to cut out screen time, you know, only one hour a day, or we're, you know, we're, we're not going to, we're, we're not going to sign up kids for that many activities and we're just going to push them out the door and it doesn't work. It's, you know, that, that, that we, we found out back in the late eighties for those of us who were old enough that, you know, Soviet style, you know, just, just withholding things from people doesn't, doesn't give people a reason to, to change their behavior. It's just miserable. And that's what happens. You, you, you push kids outside without anything to do and they look out in the neighborhood and there's nothing going on. So I, I like to frame the problem. I, I do agree. You know, they, they have too many, too much screen time and, you know, too many activities and, you know, that they need to be doing other things. But I'd rather frame the problem in terms of what are neighborhoods like today versus what were neighborhoods like decades ago. So if you push a kid outside, they look around. Neighborhoods are boring, aren't they? I mean, why, why would someone want to go out and play in the neighborhood today when there's nothing going on? It's, you know, it, it's, it's an awful choice. So neighborhoods have kind of lost or, or let's say they're losing in the competition for kids' attention. You know, if kids, a kid has an extra hour in an afternoon, he or she is going to think, well, I could turn on my television. It's, it's going to have something. Uh, I could turn on my iPad. I can play this game. It's going to work. It's going to be there. What happens if I go outside? There's a very, very 
low probability that anything's going on. And so they choose, they choose the video game or they, they, they choose the television. So a lot of what the emphasis of Playborhood is, a, is about how, about encouraging parents, giving parents ideas, ways to make their neighborhood into an interesting place that actually is a, a, a competitor with television, with video games, with the other activities. So that the, so that the neighborhood is attractive to kids. And so that's the way I'd like to frame the problem. And this way you frame the problem speaks to the network effect that you talk about in the book about kids deciding whether they play or don't play outside. So if there aren't any kids out there playing, no one's going to play. But if there are kids out there playing, then the kid, more kids are more likely to play. Yeah, that, 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 sounds, that, that sounds almost too simple, but it's actually an important concept. And the network effect is something that we see in a lot of, I studied economics, so I, I like to think this way. It's, it's, it's a, it comes very naturally to me. But, but uh, if you think about, for instance, the different kinds of cell phone operating systems, there's really two. There's Android and there's iOS. You know, why are there only two? Well, there used to be Windows Phone, there used to be BlackBerry, there used to be actually a lot of others. Some companies have tried to promote their own new um, smartphone operating systems, but there's only two. Why is that? Because there's this network effect that if someone else uses iOS, that actually benefits me because I use iOS, because that means there will be more apps built for iOS. There'll be more Apple stores around where they can repair and they can, they can solve my problems. And so I benefit from someone else's use of, of iOS devices. Well, the network effect works in neighborhoods like this. You would think that the decision the family makes about, let's say it's summer now. So what are kids doing in the summer? You would think that that is a, as a private decision that has, that is just something that, you know, is no one else's business. But actually, if my neighbors send all their kids to camp every day, that affects my kids' experience. That means that my kids really can't have a good time in the neighborhood during the day in the summer, uh, during weekdays in the summer, because every, all the neighbor kids are out. So whether we like it or not, neighbors' decisions about what their kids do and the kids' decisions themselves actually have an effect on my kids. So there's this network effect. And what you find in, in a network effect situation is that there's two, generally two, two possible equilibria. One is nothing and the other is all, all or nothing. And so that's what, that's, that's what happens with neighborhood play. You either have, I mean, if, 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 if a kid wants to go out and is thinking about, Hey, maybe I'll go outside and, and check it out and see if anybody's out there. If there's say a, a low probability, but not zero, if there's a 10% chance or 5% chance that someone's out there. They, why bother? You know, they, they, they look us, they look around. There's, there's a 90% or 95% chance there's nothing going on. Most likely there's nothing going on. But if they turn on their, their computer, or if they turn on their, their, their iPad, there's a hundred percent chance that they're going to have something to do. So, so a 10% or 5% or even 20% chance tends to crash down to zero. Because no one wants to try if it's so low. On the other hand, if it's hopping, if something's happening all the time, then, you know, that, that's, that's attractive. If people want to be there, if, if there's something going on all the time. So there's this natural tendency to have all or nothing. And, uh, it's very important because, you know, parents think, Oh, if I put the, the little tyke slide in my front yard, I've done a good thing because I've given my kid something to do outside. But the truth is that making 
because in this day and age, kids don't play outside very much or hardly at all in, in, in most neighborhoods, that making your neighborhood into a place where kids want to play, you know, and, and that's their choice to play is actually really hard. You have to create critical mass so that kids have a hangout and they're showing up on a very regular basis. Yeah. And so back, say, when you were a kid or I was a kid, there were those, there were those hangouts, right? Like yeah. there might've been some kid's house. Like that was the hangout. You'd all just show up there and then you decide what you're going to do that day. Or you'd show up at a local park or you'd show up at the Creek. But yeah, that's not, there, a lot of neighborhoods don't have that anymore. Yeah. And, and there's a, there's a, there's a term for it. I'll get a little academic on, on you again, but there's, there's this term in sociology called a third place. The idea of a third place, uh, put forth by a sociologist named Ray Oldenburg is that uh, human beings have in history have had in general three different places in their life that were the foundation of their social life. Uh, one of their first place is their home where their family is. Their second place is their, is their, is their workplace or school where they show up every day and, and, they have that social group there, but then there's this third place and the third place isn't so formal. It's a place that you show up when you want. And when you show up, there's almost always uh, someone there who you want to see you enjoy your time with them and you leave when you want to leave. And so for adults, the prototypical third place, at least in the, in the late 20th century was the cheers bar. Those guys, those folks just showed up and they had instant social life and, and they, they could count on there being somebody there that they wanted to see and they wanted to hang out with for kids. Well, for me, I had a, a stretch of street between my house and a, and a house across the street where we played ball every day. There was a, a place in the woods, but there were these places that we just knew we could just show up. And we had a very high probability that, you know, we weren't going to be, we, we weren't, there was going to be something going on. And today, these days, you know, kids still yearn for that. Almost no kids have that in their, in the physical world. And so, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat have become the de facto third place uh, for children today, and it's really sad. So, do we have any? Do you have any idea, like, what critical mass is required in a neighborhood for like a playborhood to take root? Have you been able to figure that out or see anything? Well, yeah, I, 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 I wish I could give you an exact answer, but I'll, I'll give you my best answer by describing my neighborhood. We. and I, I know you're going, you'll probably ask me about specifically what I've done to make my yard into a, a really compelling third place, a really compelling hangout for kids. But I think we've, we've succeeded for the most part. And I would say for our yard, there are certain times of day. It's not all times of day, but certain times of day where it's quite likely that you'll find something going on. So right now it's, it's 10 o'clock in the morning on a weekday and it's dead. There's nothing going on. And there usually isn't, at least on a weekday, on, on weekend days that there often is. But, um, late afternoon before dinner time, say four or five o'clock, there's almost always something going on. And there's a lot of reasons for that. One is my family has three boys, you know, and, and right now they're 10, 11 and, and 15, but growing up through the past few years, They've been very, very active being outside. Next door, we have a family of, of three boys, slightly younger ages. There are uh, some, by the way, there's there's some houses very close to us, next door, another next door neighbor on the other side of us. They never show up here. Uh, they used to show up, but, you know, we do have a, a good supply of kids here. And that's one of the reasons we moved here. And some of these kids, not all of them, become what 
I, you know, you, you could call the anchor tenants, the, the, the kids who are here almost all the time and they form the foundation and then other kids show up because they know that if they, they're not next door, they're a block away, two blocks away. If they come, there's going to be something going on. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. These days, a lot of workplaces offer some pretty nice perks, a snack station, 15 flavors of soda water, even insurance. While it's nice to have a handful of trail mix now and then, it's not enough to subsist on. And neither is your workplace life insurance. That's where Policy Genius comes in. Policy Genius is the easiest way to shop for life insurance online. In minutes, you can compare quotes from top insurers to find the right amount of coverage at the best possible price. The Policy Genius team can look at your workplace life insurance policy and help you decide what else you might need so you're fully covered. And Policy Genius can help you find the right home insurance, auto insurance, and disability insurance too. Now, when I bought life insurance and also disability insurance, it took me a long time to figure out which was the best policy for me, had to do it all on my own. Would have been nice if I had something like Policy Genius where it was like a one-stop shop. So if you are in the market for life insurance or disability insurance, trying to figure out what the best thing is for you, go to policygenius.com today and find out how to supplement your workplace life insurance and better protect your family. Policygenius.com, it's like a buffet made of life insurance. And what could be more delicious than that? Check it out, policygenius.com. Also by Squarespace. Turn your dream into reality with Squarespace. Squarespace makes it easier than ever to launch your passion project. Whether you're looking to start a new business, showcase your work, publish content, sell products, and more, Squarespace is the tool for you. They got beautiful templates created by world-class designers and the ability to customize just about anything with a few clicks. You can get a great looking website up yourself in just a few minutes. Squarespace's powerful e-commerce functionality lets you sell anything online and analytics help you grow your site in real time. Everything is optimized for mobile right out of the box. And there's nothing to patch or upgrade ever. And buying domain Domains simple. You'll get the help you need with Squarespace's 24-7 award-winning customer support. Squarespace empowers millions of people from designers to lawyers, artists to gamers, even restaurants and gyms to turn great ideas into something real. I use Squarespace to help my wife create her website for her 20th high school reunion. Really easy. Got it up in like literally 10 minutes and we were able to sell the tickets through it as well. So if you'd like to try a free trial, Squarespace, go to squarespace.com slash manliness. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code manliness to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Again, squarespace.com slash manliness for a free trial. Offer code manliness to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. And now back to the show. Well, so let's talk about your what you did in your house to make it a, to encourage a player. Because I think this is interesting because like what you're, what we want, the, the end goal is like the kids are making the choices, right? And directing themselves. But in order for that to happen, the parents, it seems like have to do, you know, set up a, a, an environment to make that happen, right? So what you did is you, you found out where there were kids, it was walkable, but then like, what did you do to get neighbor kids outside playing? Like what, what's there at your house that makes it attractive? Well, I, I'll start by saying there are some purists out there and I can understand this purists of, of, of children's play who say, oh my God, you did all this work. You, you shouldn't be doing that. You should just kick the kids outside and they should play on their own because all kids really want to play. And, you know, I agree with that theory. The problem is we have a culture today in the 21st century, uh, a children's culture that is antagonistic to play. You know, there, there are, there, you know, I talked about it before. There are so many different choices kids have and other kids aren't playing. And it's, it's very deeply ingrained in, in, in kids' minds that the play is not something that they see other kids doing. They don't see kids on TV doing it, playing in neighborhoods. So I have come to believe that parents need to do some work to set up the conditions. And then I, I, I like to think, and it's happened, it certainly happened in our case, that once you set those conditions up and, 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 and 
create the cultural change in your neighborhood, then it has a life of its own. And, and we've seen that. So what have we done? So there's two main components to what we've done. There's the uh, sort of the physical things we've done with our yard to make it into a very inviting place. And then the other side is just the, the social engineering, you will, of, of walking around, talking to people, um, kind of, you know, establishing the relationships and, and getting to know people in the neighborhood who, you know, most people don't get to know their neighbors like we have. So the first part, physical, the, the physical facility here, I, I, I live on a, let's see, it's 150, foot long by by uh, 50 foot wide lot. So that's 7,500 square feet. That's average where we live. I live in Menlo Park, California. So it's, you know, I guess kind of suburban. So it's big for a city lot, but it's it's not that big for a suburban lot. It's it's uh, not that big. But what I did was I looked at our yard and I thought, I, I rethought literally, honestly, every square foot outside of our house, I rethought in terms of how we could use it rather than how can I make it look like the other yards in the neighborhood or how can I make it look right for selling the house? I'm, I don't plan on selling the house, but but it, it's amazing if you sit and think about it, how how people do not, they, they don't, they don't, they don't think about how to use their, their, their space outside their house. They're always thinking about, Oh, what are the other neighbors doing? And they've got these shrubs and they've got these flower gardens and they've got all this, all this stuff that actually isn't useful at all. So that, that's, that's, that's the, that's the, that's the highlight. What we've done is, is, uh, you know, we, we have all sorts of great facilities. So in the front yard, first thing we did was we, I tore out the pavers. Pavers are these, you know, stones uh, in our driveway, which the real estate agent will tell you, oh, it's luxurious and everybody wants pavers. Pavers are horrible for kids for a driveway because they're, they're, they're not smooth. And what do kids want to do on a driveway? They like to, they like to roll little wheels. They like to roll scooters, rollerblades. They, they like to ride bikes. They like to play basketball. They like to play bouncy ball. They like to draw a sidewalk chalk. All of that doesn't work on a driveway with pavers or, or bricks or gravel. Smooth. So I had the pavers taken out. We, we put smooth concrete, uh, there as smooth as I, we could get it. And that's, that's paid many, many dividends over the years. We've also put in a picnic table in our front yard, not our backyard, because our backyard where we live in Northern California is, is fenced in. And for some reason, I, I, I grew up in a place where we didn't have any fences. I like seeing my neighbors. For some reason, where we live in Northern California, the custom is to put fences everywhere because for some reason, you don't want to see your neighbors. I don't know. But when we eat outside, we like to see our neighbors. And so we have a lot of dinners uh, in our front yard at our picnic table. And people walk down the street. They take walks in the evening. They take walks with their dog. And we always, almost always start a conversation with somebody. We, we see someone we know. It's very social. We have, we, we have a lot of other things. We have whiteboard. We have 30 feet of whiteboard in the front yard. We have some, some public art, some mosaics that we've made with a, with a local artist. We used to have a sandbox out there. We've taken away since our kids are older. We used to have a play river in the backyard. By the way, I'll say, I originally thought we're not doing anything in the backyard because we need to be out in front meeting people and seeing people. Uh, there's no good in us being in the backyard where we, people don't see us, but we've gotten a reputation. People gotten to know our yard and we have a lot of, we have space in our, our backyard. So we put some amazing things in our backyard, a, 
a huge playhouse uh, that we do sleepovers in, an in-ground trampoline, ground level, which is much safer than a, a trampoline that's that's above ground. It's also a lot more fun. We have a play structure. We have a zip line. <laughs> so we have a lot of critical mass. And, and you might say, oh my gosh, that's a lot of money. You know, that's a lot of that's a lot of resources. It is, but you need to consider we, we live in a, a neighborhood with very expensive homes and kids have the most amazing electronics inside the houses that you can imagine. So we're in a competition. We're in a competition with every kid having a place where every kid has an iPad. Every kid has hundreds of channels of television. We've got a really compelling place. That's the, that's the physical facilities. On the other side, especially when my kids were younger, we were out playing in the street or in our front yard pretty much every day after dinner, some days before dinner, like in the winter, if I had the time to take off of work, we were out knocking on doors. We would uh, very most likely walk to our grocery store rather, or, or ride bikes to our grocery store rather than, than, than drive. We got to know our neighbors. We, we uh, really spent a lot of time out there and our kids became very comfortable. Uh, being there, they got to know uh, other people. Uh, we got to know people, even people that, you know, uh, families that, 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 that don't have kids and, and uh, a lot of empty nesters, older people, they've turned out to be great assets as well. For instance, about five houses down, there's a guy who is a, you know, a, a hangover of the hippie generation. He's still got really long hair. He looks, uh, different, uh, kind of scary to some people, but actually we've gotten to know him. He is a magician. He's a wonderful magician. He comes to our house a couple times a year still uh, for parties. He's become a great asset. And a lot of neighborhoods have, have people like that, that they, they probably don't even know about. So the, the two components are changing the physical facilities and then also getting to know the, um, the people in the neighborhood very well and making our kids comfortable with them and getting to know the other kids who live in the neighborhood. Yeah, I think that second component is really important. Some people might hear like, oh, I'll just make my house a lot of fun, but it's not like if you build it, they will come, right? There, there, right. there also has a, a cultural change has to occur and that takes a lot of, that'll, that'll take work and it might take months, might even take years for it to, to take root. I, I, I hate to say it, it takes years, but honestly, we've had fun every step of the way. And, and at this point, our, our kids are very self-managing. You know, I won't lie. There's chaos in our yard quite often, but there's hardly ever any real danger. And uh, our kids can occupy themselves, have fun on their own. And they also go to other friends' houses. Another component I haven't even talked about is kids being independently mobile. We're very big on bikes, biking. Our kids do not get driven to school at all or picked up from school at all. They they're, they're ride their bikes to and from school every day. And they're very able, as other kids in our neighborhood are, they're very able to go to other kids' houses without us hovering over them. Well, go, let's go to this part about, you know, you mentioned that, okay, it sounds, you were listing off all the things you did physically to change your house to make it more inviting for play. And you said, like, oh, that's a lot of resources. But what I like about the book is you also highlight other neighborhoods and other individuals who, they were able to create a playborhood, but maybe didn't have to do what you had to do, but they're still able to do it with even limited resources. Yeah, well, well for instance, um, the book has a few chapters on other neighborhoods uh, and has a chapter on my neighborhood. It also, I also have a, a two-page spread on an apartment complex. And that was actually very easy to write because, you know, the, the, the apartments are, the apartments themselves are, are small. They don't have air conditioning. A couple moms just decided, you know, stay-at-home moms decided, you know, we're just going to put a chair out outside every day uh, during the summer and we're going to sit around and chat. And the kids come out 
And the mothers really don't have to do much at all. They, you know, someone just bought a TV. They put a cardboard box out. The kids play with the cardboard box all day. You know, they, they, they bring out a bunch of, a bunch of, uh, kitchen implements and the kids are, you know, or have a play kitchen that they've created. The amount of effort that parents have to do to, to get that play started depends on how much you have inside your house. <laughs> you know, because like I said, like I said before, what we're really trying to do is we're trying to get the neighborhood to, to, to be, to compete with what the alternatives the kids have. And so in a neighborhood where, where it's just a, there's just a courtyard in an apartment complex with small apartments. And if they don't have air conditioning, especially it's, it's very easy to get kids to, to, to go outside and play all day. There, there are other neighborhoods in between my neighborhood, which is a, a nice suburban neighborhood and, and that apartment complex, very different examples from a, a really cool hipster neighborhood in Portland, Oregon, a, a new urbanist community in Alabama, and a very a low income street in the South Bronx, which is generally considered to be one of the one of the most dangerous and, and poorest places in the United States that has an amazing play street that happens uh, every day throughout the summer. And also in the book you highlight, besides making a place, a fun place for kids to hang out, in addition to that, that cultural component of just being outside all the time with your kids playing, so kid, other families see, oh, this is something that's normal. We can do this too. You also highlight other things that families have done to promote that sense of cohesion, like just, just like one-time events. It could be like a movie night or something like that. Yeah, well, I... I so I, I'm I'm a bit I'm ambivalent about about the one time events and let me explain I I think they can be really good and the big thing that we do around here is we have these these block parties uh, there's also uh, you know uh, some neighborhoods will, will plan a play day for kids uh, some neighborhoods will will figure out a time just when they can block off their street and it's not a block party but it's just a, it's a, a well. The different ways to do that. One neighborhood I know uh, has done something like I've done. They've done a, a neighborhood summer camp for one week. They do it one week every every year. And so these can be really, really good. I think that the hesitation I have uh, is that I would say that the event shouldn't be, it's not the end in itself. It's, it's a, it, it, what it does is it, is it, it helps you create relationships and help you to start changing culture but that's it just should be a catalyst and the the goal should be play every day or on a regular basis at least a, a couple times a week and if kids are not in that habit then you know they're going to have other habits they're going to the, the the big question i have is what do kids choose to do when they have some free time in an afternoon what what does their mind go and i want them to be in the habit of doing things on their own the, the events can be wonderful my favorite i mentioned the last one i mentioned the neighborhood summer camp can really change the culture of a neighborhood and the cool thing about it is it's it's old school it's just kids from the immediate neighborhood getting together for every day for one week and having a blast. The one that I write about in, in the book is a neighborhood where uh, it's in Palo Alto, California, uh, very close to where, to where I am, where they've created a scheme of camp counselors from, they, I think they call them junior counselors, you know, counselors in training, junior counselors, senior counselors. So they've got every, you know, throughout the teens, they've got all, all the kids with, with different kinds of roles and they end up getting the kids 
all from, from four years old up to 17. And in this neighborhood, a couple of years, I remember asking them, well, one year I remember of 65 kids who live in that neighborhood, they had 61 kids participate. And that's all the kids between four and 17. Really to have that comprehensive participation means that everybody gets to know each other. And so when you're living your everyday life, you see people, you know, you see people you have a warm feeling for, and that creates a, a habit of, of, of repeated relationships, repeated play dates and, and get togethers all year. So it's, it's, it's really a, it's really an example of, of a catalyst that actually can have a, a lasting effect all year. Well, here's another cultural problem that people might run up to or they think exists. So I think some people might be listening to this. Okay, that sounds great. I'm going to make my house awesome for kids to, you know, hang out and play. But I'm worried about getting sued if like a kid falls off the roof of a tree house. Is 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 that is that a legitimate concern or do you think it's over overblown? Well, I think it's a legitimate concern, but I don't think it's it's people should consider it a big enough concern to outweigh the benefit. You know, there's a lot of legitimate concerns. Any, every time you step in your car and turn on the, you know, turn on the car and drive away, you're decreasing your, your life expectancy. Driving is a very dangerous thing, but we do it every day because we've decided that the benefits of driving are worth the costs. Well, it's the same thing with inviting kids with a lot of fun play facilities, even like a trampoline, like we have. There's, 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 there's costs and there's benefits to doing that. I would say a few things about that. First of all, you can try to mitigate the risks. So one of the things we've done is we have a ground level trampoline versus a, a above ground trampoline. You can try to mitigate the risks and you should do that, but you can't eliminate risks completely. You just can't. There's going to be risks in your yard. Another thing I'll say is that something remarkable happens if you have a real playborhood environment like we do, where kids are coming over on a regular basis. You find that, that and I, this is this sounds sarcastic, but it, but everybody kind of thinks when they first have kids that kids are crazy and all they want to do is dangerous things and hurt themselves. Kids actually don't want to hurt themselves. <laughs> kids actually think about their personal safety if you give them enough time with some situations that are potentially dangerous and they'll, and they'll sort of push their limits a little more every time. And what you find in our, in our yard is the kids become very good at taking risks. We have a trampoline and we have kids jumping on it every day here. And we've had in 10 years, two accidents that required any sort of medical attention. Both of them were stitches, a few stitches in the lip or you know, and, and, you know, uh, elsewhere on the face. That's, I think, a, a pretty remarkable record given the amount of activity we've had on this, this trampoline. Uh, but, but kids become very good at it. And, and, and pretty much every kid who comes here, who comes here for any length of time, learns how to do flips, front flips, back flips. They also, we also have a two story playhouse right next to the trampoline. They're jumping 10 feet, 12 feet down under the, under the trampoline. They're doing really crazy, risky things but they've learned how to take risks. And by the way, that's an important thing in life because we want our kids to grow up and to try to get a raise, to try to get, to try to start a new company. We want them to take risks in their careers while they're learning how to do that in our yard. And they're, and they're being very successful at it. Uh, the last thing I'll say 
is about this question of, of risk and, and, and being sued is, you know, another thing we do is I, I try to get to know other parents and I get to know pretty much all the parents of kids who come here. So I think it's less likely, you know, as I think it's, you know, becomes less likely because of that, that they're going to try to sue me. We also, you know, we try to do things to, to, to mitigate the risk of, of kids uh, having bad accidents with, you know, like an in-ground trampoline, but we're not going to wipe it out completely. So you end up with some probability of, of, of being sued. Let's compare that to the probability that my kids are going to have a better life, that they're going to have more fun, that they're going to have a wonderful childhood. That's probably 50%, 60%, 70%. I'll take those odds anytime. The probability being sued, I don't know, it's 0.1%, 0.01%. I don't know what it is. The probability of them having a better life is 50, 60, 70%. I'll take those odds anytime. And that's what umbrella insurance is for, probably. To be, to be totally honest, I just don't like the insurance industry. I feel like uh, they, they, they have a way of getting out of, of, of paying up in a lot of circumstances. I don't know exactly what my insurance covers. I have insurance. I have umbrella insurance, but I'm not counting on it. I'm just counting on, you know, I'm betting the odds that things are going to work out. And, you know, that's life. I mean, if, if, if you're really that afraid, you really shouldn't be driving your car. Right, right. And, and speaking of that idea of risk, I mean, another reason my kids aren't playing outside is that parents are afraid that their kids are going to get abducted. All right, we've had Lenore Skenazy on the podcast yeah. to talk about this. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, that's like, it's, it's like, it's a, it's overblown right? It's not that big of a risk. It's okay. Your kid is like more likely to get struck by lightning than get abducted by a stranger. Yeah. I mean, Lenore, that's, that's her, that's her shtick is, is, is breaking that down and breaking that, 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 that fear down and, and, and really uh, getting people to, 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 to not rate it so highly in their mind. They definitely overrate the possibility of that happening it's it, the probability is not zero the probability exists but it's really low and i think what i think really honestly i think that the biggest problem is not that people are fearful but that they actually don't they can't imagine that their kids could have so much fun so uh, what i found is is Parents that have various hesitations, they want their kids to be in activities all the time, or they want their, they're afraid their kids are going to get abducted. They bring their kids over our yard and they're just amazed at, at the joy the kids have and, and really playing with abandon that they, that a lot of kids just don't have in their lives today. And parents need to experience that. And I think, I think that will really wither away the, the, the hesitations that people have that, that seem irrational. So when I was a kid, one of the things that we did was play capture the flag at night. And that involved, you know, it was like all the neighbor kids in the street. And like, we would be hiding in neighbor, neighbors, you know, garden beds on the side of their house in their backyard, like jumping over fences. And like the parents didn't, like no one cared. Cause like all the parents, like those were, those are their neighbor kids' houses. Right. Yeah. So there was a buy and the, the parents didn't care. I, I imagine if that happened today, like there'd be people on the next door app, right. Complaining about, there's kids jumping my fence. How do you, my question, I guess my, my question I'm going in there with this is like, how do you get buy-in from neighbors who don't have kids, right? And it sounds like it's not that big of a problem because you mentioned the magician guy. Is that an issue where, you know, creating a playborhood where you have neighbors who don't have kids, they're just like, I don't want that. It's 
too much ruckus, too much noise. Well, or- I, I, I'll say this. So, so, so the generally speaking about, I want to make a comment about, about the neighbor reaction. So, you know, just like a lot of things in life, there's this, there's kind of a bell curve distribution. We have on the one end people who are the least enthusiastic and the other end we have people who are the most enthusiastic and in the middle are people who, you know, they kind of like it. They think it's pretty cool, but it's not going to, you know, it's not going to change their lives in any measurable way. But the, 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 the far, the first, and uh, of people who aren't enthusiastic, for the most part, they're not against us. They're not antagonistic to what we're doing. It's that we just don't have any impact on their life at all. They would, they, they just sort of, they, they, they blow by us. They don't think about us. We're just these weird people who are doing something different. We, we don't really upset them. I do have one neighbor who, an older woman, um, and, and who lives with her husband, uh, they're, I guess in the early seventies, I would say she's a very nice person, uh, nice to talk to. And she came up to me and she said, she basically said she doesn't think our kids should be playing on the street, riding their bikes, riding their scooters. And we live on a street that's very calm. I've, I've actually, cause I'm a geek about kids play and I've written this book. I, I, I actually have spent time counting cars and, you know, it ends up being about, one car every couple minutes, which isn't bad. You know, one car every two minutes, three minutes, something like that. But she just thinks kids should not be on the street. And I, I, I tried to listen to her and I said, well, I'll do this for you. I will, I or some other adult will be on the sidewalk keeping an eye on our kids when they're in the street, but I'm not going to tell our kids they can't go on the street. And, and quite honestly, I feel like the street is, as much our kids as, as any car that goes by. It's, it's all our, it's, it's, it's everybody's property. It's not the, it's not the, uh, sole domain of, of any car that wants to pass by. And she just, she wasn't happy about that. And we're not real friendly these days. You know, I feel a bit bad about that, but I'm, I'm just not going to give up. I'm not going to tell my kids they can't play in the street. I think that it's, uh, if you really stop and think about it, why is it that you know, the, some people think that cars have total carte blanche to do whatever they want on streets, no matter what street it is. You know, if it's if it's an interstate highway, I get it. But a street that gets a, a car every three or four minutes, you know, I think kids have as much right to it uh, as as cars do. Yeah, man. If that if, if I couldn't play in the street when I was a kid, like there'd be no street hockey. There wouldn't have been any baseball games because yeah. that's where we played. Yeah, yeah. The street and it, like it wasn't that big of a deal. As soon as the you know the car came, you said game off. Like on Wayne's World, went to the yeah. side, car passed, and you got and you went back to playing. It was not a big deal. Yeah, yeah, and and and, and I'll, I'll tell you to be honest. Some people, neighbors might not like this, but but um, there was a my kids have on and off played street hockey in the street in front of our house for for years, and they're not doing it right now, but they'll probably they'll probably start this fall again. There was a time we were playing a lot, and we put the goals right in the middle of the street, and when a car would come. I did not run really fast to grab the goal. I take my good old sweet time and I grab that goal and I nice and easy walk, you know, pull that goal off to the side. I made the, made the driver know that, you know, this is not a great street to pass through. <laughs> and, and, uh, you know, that's, that's the kind of thing that my, my friends and I did. We, we didn't like cars passing through. We felt we like, 
you know, we didn't feel like we own the street, but we felt like, Hey, you know, the, this is, this is our place. And, uh, maybe you might want to take another route the next time you, you think about driving through a neighborhood. And to this point of, you know, having these difficult conversations, like that's part of being in a community. Oftentimes when people think about a community, they always think of the happy stuff, like the, the day camp that moms put on and it's great. But like the other part of being in a community is it takes work and it requires having those difficult conversations. And it might mean like you're not friendly with some people, but it's something you got to do if you want to have that, that larger goal you're aiming for. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, it's obvious in life you don't you don't always need to capitulate to someone else's demands. I think it's important that you you listen to someone, you you try to you know meet them part way. But you know, I I, I have this fundamental belief that that uh, streets are not just for cars, especially like I said, streets where there's not a lot of traffic. And you know, I, I'm very happy to say that that our kids feel totally comfortable in our yard in the street going to other people's houses. It's a place where it's their domain. It's, it's a place that they can, they feel very comfortable doing anything they want. So Mike, I wonder if you have any advice to say like, there's one thing that someone can start doing today, a parent who's listening to the show that they can start making a playbook happen in their neck of the woods. What would you say that one thing could be like a step an action they can take right now? Well, I, I, I like to use the, uh, adage that is often attributed to, to Woody Allen. Uh, I think he, I read that he said someone else said it first, but uh, he's often quoted as saying, 80% of life is showing up. And there's, there's different ways to interpret that. But the way I like to interpret it for this, in this context is, you know, show up in your neighborhood. Where do you show up as parents? Do you show up in front of the television set every day after dinner? Are you, you know, working after dinner, uh, going off into your study? If you show up in your neighborhood with your kids, out front, if you're walking and biking to uh, nearby places like the grocery store or or to the park rather than driving, if you're showing up at neighbors' houses, knocking on the door, chatting with them, then kids, your kids will will definitely get the sense that that this is normal. This is a, this is a place that is is worthy of my parents' attention, and this is worthy of my attention as well. Uh, so I say, show up in your neighborhood uh, as often as you can. Awesome. Well, Mike, is there some place people can go to learn more about the book and your work? Well, there's the book, uh, Playborhood, available on Amazon.com. The The website, I haven't been blogging for the past couple of years, but there's a bunch of, just, there's a couple hundred blog articles on Playborhood.com. By the way, there's, well, I guess it's not so easy to find, but there's lots of disciples of Playborhood, lots of uh, instances of people trying to create Playborhoods throughout the United States. And in the book, there's examples of other neighborhoods we just touched on briefly. Each of those is really fascinating in its own right. For instance, I mentioned this place in in Portland, Oregon called Sherritt Square and it's part of a city repair movement. That's one of many examples that are just fascinating for different ideas, different approaches to how to create a a great uh, place for play for kids. Awesome. Well, Mike Lanza, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Brett, thank you so much. My guest today was Mike Lanza. He's the author of the book, Playborhood. It's available on amazon.com. You can also find out more information about his work at his website, playborhood.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash Playborhood. Well, 
Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles we've written over the years on parenting, how to dress better, health and sports, fitness, you name it, we've got it. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the Art of Manliness Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Go to stitcherpremium.com, use code MANLINESS at checkout to get a month free trial Stitcher Premium. Once you're signed up, you can download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and start enjoying ad-free episodes of the Art of Manliness Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think will get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay. Reminding you not only listen to the AOM podcast, but put what you've heard into action.